this is the Gifted Kid Complex, the show where the panelists were gifted kids and refused to move on with a satirical take on intellectual elitism by having the most tongue-in-cheek, inane, pedantic, and convoluted conversations every week. Introducing your host this episode, she's ambitious to the point of hubris, it's Shersi. I really do not know what to say right now. <laughs> Damn. That's my tagline. These improvised taglines. I gotta stop pre-preparing them. Anyway, um, and every other episode, her burnout is imminent. Your host is Taya C. See, now I also don't have a tagline. Great, that works. Each panelist here today has experienced gifted kid syndrome growing up in some way. So Taya, where do you study? What do you do? Hi, I'm Taya. I do a BA in history at Oxford. My fun fact today is that my bubble tea order is usually uh, honey oolong milk tea Oh, um, with bubbles. I Why? usually have it 30% sugar and no ice. Oh God, I'm sorry, <laughs> but we can't be friends anymore. <laughs> Why are you horrified? I am very much not a honey and tea enjoyer. I think it makes the taste weird. I think the weirdest thing about my bubble tea order is that it's honey oolong, but with like 30% sugar. Yeah, like the fact that you're <laughs> adding sugar when there's already honey in it. My my order is usually uh, 50% sugar, just a standard milk tea with pearls, or 50% sugar green tea with pearls. Cher, why don't you introduce yourself? Yes, so I'm Cher. I am studying philosophy BA at UCL, University College London, and my fun fact is that I thought toasters were like a made-up fictional thing when I was a child. And when I realized that they were a thing because I saw them on TV, I thought they were an American-only thing. What? Like like a, like a toaster? Like Yeah, like the <laughs> thing. Oh my god. The toaster we had in my home was a toaster oven. And we called okay. that a toaster. That was my understanding. I hadn't developed a more nuanced and wider schema as to what a toaster is. Uh, but now we have one. So. Yeah, I, I should hope so. My word of the day is preternatural. Slay. There are multiple ways that it can be interpreted. One is existing outside of nature. Two is exceeding what is natural or regular. And three mm. is inexplicable by ordinary means. Yeah, it's a polysemantic word. Okay. It derives from Latin, preternaturam. Or I can't pronounce Latin, so uh, that's definitely wrong. Or preternaturum, <laughs> and it means beyond nature. So it's been used um, strangely in theology and by scientists um, in di very different ways. Oh, In theology, it's more to distinguish between witchcraft or demonic, deceptive kind of trickery mm -hmm. from like divine powers. God-given supernatural origins that, you know, transcend the natural laws. And I imagine that it would probably apply to non-Christian gifts yeah. as well, although it's not really been used that way as much, I think. Mm. From scientists, it was used in the early modern period to refer to, quote, abnormalities and strange phenomena of various kinds that seem to depart from the norms of nature. So that's closer to that existing outside of nature or exceeding what is natural or regular kind of meaning. It sounds like something that we'd study when like looking at Shakespeare. Mm. Whenever I think of the supernatural, for some reason, I always think of Shakespeare. Mm. Maybe that's a gifted kid thing. Perhaps. <laughs> I also read uh, Jorge Luis Borges his like fantastic beasts, like a little bit more esoteric, mm -hmm. but it was good nonetheless. Uh, today's title 
of the episode is folkloric creatures and where you can't find them. Oh, excellent. Yeah, no, I love a folkloric yeah, creature. We're really on on topic. Folkloric creatures. I can't believe that's on the nose. Yeah. But <laughs> before we get to folkloric creatures, we're going to talk a little bit about mythology once again. Yeah. Let's start things off by asking, what's your favorite mythology? Oh, good question. I have read a lot of myth. So my name, right, Taya, the pronunciation actually comes from a Norse goddess. Ooh, did not know that. Dorothea. Is it T-H-E-A? Yeah, it is. The one that I know the most about, unsurprisingly, is Greek, but I do not claim to be an expert in it at all. Mm. Everybody was really into Percy Jackson as a kid, but I actually only read the series, like, last year. Oh. At age 20? (laughs) I think I read it at age 10. No, that's a more appropriate age to read it at. Yeah. No, so great. (laughs) It was one of those things that it was just bizarre that I hadn't. Mm. Uh, So I bit the bullet and I did it. And it was, it was, it was nice. It it was nice. I I enjoyed it. I I did too. Speaking of Norse mythology, I think it's way too complicated. It has like multiple pantheons. Yeah. It has multiple realms that are unnamed. Yeah. The poetic and the prose edda are way too complicated and are translated in so many different ways. And no one really knows what it says really yeah it's complicated old norse is one of the most cryptic old languages out there (laughs) for real truly Uh, a lot of the mythology that i've read now i often re-examine with a gender lens the boundaries of gender are so mutable i suppose is Mm -hmm. the word yeah yeah for sure you can mess with them because they're these are deities and so they have the power to mess with gender yeah there there are a lot of like divine beings that are said to be of all genders or no gender or have the power to change it at will yes like loki for example Mm. baphomet is uh supposed to be hermaphroditic i don't know how to pronounce that word that whole Mm. um idea of being in open defiance of prescribed sex by having aspects Mm. of both male and female biology was a very key facet yeah. to the characterization of Baphomet. It's their power over nature. Yes, for sure. The heart of what gods are as like an explanation mm-hmm. or a justification or a manifestation of nature, which is how they derive power and legitimacy. Kingship is often built upon that idea of a cosmic order. Yes. Nature above all, but gods control nature. So gods are above nature and we are below. Kings are somewhere in between that. Yeah. That's kind of that relationship to history, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. And we're going to talk about that. Something that's really interesting with pantheons that Mm. are, you know, prescribed often or reinforced by rulers of societies really influences the way in which they control the masses. The ones that are coming to mind are Greek for me. So, for example, like the cult of Dionysus, they, you know, Mm. it blew up because alcohol suddenly became okay. And they treated it as if it was this divine thing, this Orphic tradition that led into a, you know, Dionysian tradition. Really influenced the effects that alcohol and partying Mm. and that kind of attitude had in that society. And that goes for all of the cults as well. I wanted to bring the conversation around to syncretism. Okay, Define syncretism for the audience. This is from Oxford Languages. The amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. Oh, good stuff. So we're going to specifically be talking about syncretism between religious mythology, going back to that rulers enforcing their values, but also trying to influence their cultures 
by mm. you know identifying local deities within like specific regional domains and kind of syncretize them with the relevant god or goddess of the Greek pantheon when they start spreading out right which is supposed yep. to increase cohesion like uh, assimilation into their kingdoms and it's interesting that many locations did accept this but one example that did not yeah so there was an attempt to syncretize Yahweh with Zeus <laughs> which was not great and did not go over well it was considered blasphemy it really did not yeah work out well for the greeks it's all about like the formation of orthodoxy right the regulation of order the Absolutely. idea of disruption is so complex by assimilating your gods to someone else's do you disrupt the initial kind of condition or, or myth of your own gods yes that's another thing is that blasphemy or not whether or not it's actually blasphemy is entirely subjective. Absolutely. It is entirely dependent on the extent to which people feel like it destabilizes the or reinforces the existing order. I think a big part of why it really didn't go over well with anything Judeo-Christian when the Hellenistic Greeks were taking over is because mm. the Greek pantheon is a pantheon. And Judeo-Christian belief is monotheistic they believe mm -hmm. in the holy trinity but it but it's one one you know it's one god it's one god um at its core yeah so by trying to say that hey this god is one of our many gods it does not really work nope uh, like the greco-roman one makes a lot of sense there are so many similarities and there are mm. a lot of parallels that it really didn't mm. make many mm. disturbances like severely altering reverberations into the canons mm. it's interesting that once the greeks started doing that to the romans that the romans then continued that practice elsewhere yeah so they did it back I think that monotheism, polytheism, dualism split is really important. Oh, yeah. It's a certain structure of order, right? It's a certain cosmic order. It doesn't work if they're incompatible. Yeah, and they are fundamentally incompatible. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. something that's really important to remember that a lot of people do not and don't think about is that canons with mythologies are not really things mm. because mythology shifts. It's very nebulous. It changes with the needs of the people. It changes with, you know, culture developing. It changes with how their society begins to grow. The kind of people that mm. join and leave the society really influences whatever their mythologies, whatever stories they're telling are going to look like. Characters mm. might move in and out. They might switch places. They might completely disappear. Pre-Hellenistic, Hades does not exist, actually. There's, <laughs> there's no indication that he was in any Linear B writing, if I'm correct. Yeah. Right. So in Mycenaean Greek tradition, right, Poseidon was the main god. He was the, mm. the guy, the ruler. Whereas... Uh, in Hellenistic tradition, I'm not sure why this change happened, but it became Zeus. It's more likely to be with the change of regime or a change mm. of dynasty. So they mm -hmm. claim a new patron god. That seems to me more likely, but I don't know when exactly the switch happened. There are some really strange examples. So there's this alleged Egyptian to Christian syncretism. Oh. That uh, there's an Isis to Virgin Mary <laughs> syncretism. Yeah. So, like, this isn't confirmed. This isn't, like, we know for a fact that this is the case. 
some people think that many of the traits, character attributes of Isis, the goddess in Egyptian mythology, whose worship kind of spread out during the later period of the Roman Mm. Empire, got syncretized to the Christian Virgin Mary, which to me seems very bizarre and strange. And it's interesting to see that. There's a lot of Virgin Mary syncretism out there. I mean, the cult of the Virgin Mary is um, is super interesting. We don't know where it actually came from, but only that it was a reported phenomenon, mm-hmm. which is interesting that it's like kind of a local deity before the Spanish came was syncretized mm-hmm. with the Virgin Mary. But the problem with the sources is that, yes, okay, we only have Christian sources. Yes, that can still tell us a lot, but we still don't have a full enough picture. And when it comes to myth, the question of true objective truth and verisimilitude feels reductionist Mm -hmm. why do we need to know whether it is actually true or not why do we need to know all we do want to know is that it had an impact or that the idea is there yeah i think like inherently that's going to be the case with mythology because it's mythology you know there's no veridical truth as to (laughs) what actually happened in the canon but i think it's important and it's not misplaced for us to try and find the general social understanding was of the canon for for each time period because then we can understand its effects and why those effects happened so many cultures did not prioritize writing oral tradition was just the way that they handed down things Mm -hmm. um especially in african tradition so only now Mm -hmm. is any african myth starting to be you know codified in any kind of literal writing form yeah obviously the romans christians greeks just were much more on it when it came to writing hence there's just an oversaturation and overrepresentation mm. of that because they were the ones writing things down. Everybody else also had thoughts. Everybody else also had takes. Mm. They were just not codified. So we don't have them anymore. And with the Enlightenment, with that kind of lionization and prioritization and bias towards what is orthodox and what is written to have written things in a certain way, mm. that kind of became the way to determine civilization. That's a huge air quotes, by the way, civilization. Very, very Eurocentric. The existence of writing is rationality which was used Mm. as the way to determine whether or not a society was civilized or not. Myth is interesting because it's that intersection between history and anthropology. For sure. It can be analyzed from so many different angles because it inherently Mm. is multidisciplinary. Like there's no one way to tackle it. Because myths are texts. Yes. Exactly. Uh, But they're texts that have you know, social purposes, worship, understanding theology, understanding, yeah. you know, places in the world. For entertainment. Yes. A lot of myth exists in verse or in poetry. Mm. And so the further back you go, you might imagine that some of them are set to song. The King Arthur myths, right? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Percival myths. Those are often told in court, right? To a noble yes. audience and uh, for entertainment, establishing a certain knightly culture. Whether or not it was actually representative of how knights acted in that day, we don't know. We should clarify a distinction between mythology, legend, and history. Yeah. Because sometimes mythology and legend get confused for each other and they are very different things. So like King Arthur is more legend than myth. He may have been a historical guy, mm. but the difference between legend and myth is that one has basis in real world things, but it's just been embellished to service the intention of the legend. Whereas myth 
is just completely fictional, or at least it, it wasn't necessarily the codification of mm. empirically observed things that happened. I think it could be. King Arthur's existence is also disputed. There's a really weird line in between myth and legend. And yeah, for, for sure. me, I feel like myth often tries to justify or perhaps has a didactic kind of purpose Yes. Or has something to say about how the world should be. Legend mm -hmm. does a little bit less of that. Yeah. It's a little bit more of a mythical historical record. Legend is very interesting as well. Yeah. Because only in you know the last couple of centuries has there been more of an emphasis on keeping records of things that were objectively true. Prior to that, it wasn't so much about that, but rather what's the best we can make of this? What's the mm. most entertaining way? What's the way that would make this figure the most revered, for example? Yeah. So legendary tales then would make some figure more respectable mm. or more feared or more yeah. worshipped, for example. Maybe what it is is that myth kind of outlines a way for society to operate or a hierarchy or an order and legends mm. kind of provide models for behavior. Yeah, sure. King Arthur still has a didactic kind of element. That idea of chivalry, knighthood, what nobility yeah. is, what nobleness means. Maybe legends are more centered on individual human actors as well that provide models for behavior. The interesting thing that legend does when it comes to, you know, representing any kind of didactic moral belief system is that it's interesting how characters are portrayed for different actions in a kind of mm. moral appraisal. Like if we talk about Arthurian canon, extramarital love affairs were a lot more noble than we consider them now. They were. Oh, this is an act of true love that you're having this, you know, affair behind your <laughs> spouse's back. It's this beautiful thing, whereas now we'd be like, hey, that's kind of fucked. Yeah. <laughs> how about have some communication? <laughs> Treat your partner with respect. Yep. Of course, if we go all the way back, mythology is full of rape, murder, wars yep. that were just started for no reason. The further back you go, the more morally reprehensible we find the action. And that is a weird dissonance. We have to accept that the moral compass of the time was very different to what it is yeah, now. Yeah, you have to be a little bit forgiving of moral relativism to be able to look back into the past. Oh, yeah. We kind of consider our morals today as kind of the height the best way they should be but that's how morals work yeah everybody at every point in history has yeah. thought that everyone has thought that they are right and everyone else is wrong that's that classic human attitude part of what myth does is that it rather reinforces it or shows you the consequences mm -hmm. of what happens when you mess up myth legend and history are all very intertwined boundaries are always very fuzzy especially about anything that doesn't have any kind of tautological definition yeah if, if it's gonna be about any human phenomenon it's just yeah. impossible and we just kind of have to accept that but at the same time having these terms and these definitions do serve a purpose they do just because it isn't an objective thing doesn't mean it's a useless exercise to try and figure out how to conceptualize things and have conversations about them because how mm. else can we ever have any conversations about things if we do not have the language to convey it absolutely and then we can go into language games <laughs> Oh, we love that. We love Wittgenstein. He's great. I wanted to briefly touch on yeah. Christianization because obviously with syncretism, we cannot ignore 
the very, very aggressive Christianization that happened with a lot of colonization of many different parts of the world. And I'm not going to get too into it because it's still relevant to today, but I think we have to kind of acknowledge that syncretism can be very harmful. It is often the result of very harmful things. Very true. And it doesn't always go over well, yeah. but there are some examples that are very, very accepted and overt. For example, like Shinto being pantheistic, it, their beliefs kind of mix with Buddhism. In China, mm -hmm. we have the mixed school, so that's Zatya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Chinese philosophy, it's very common school of thought, but it's eclectic. It's the amalgamation of Confucianism, mm. Taoism, Buddhism, legalism. It's seen in a lot of Chinese literature. And I, I think the most popular and most famous example would be um, CLT, mm. uh, Journey to the West, where you have figures from pretty much every Chinese cultural belief system show up at some point. Yeah. And everybody's just cool with it. Buddha and Confucius and, you know, the Jade <laughs> Emperor, they were all just hanging out in the story. And that was fine. They're all just chilling. Syncretism is just a thing. Mm. It doesn't have a value inherently. It's just how well does it go over? How well is it applied? Certain cultures are going to be more receptive to it inherently because of their beliefs than others. Mm. It, it, it's just a thing that happens. And it's not a thing that we can describe as a bad or a good phenomenon. It's value neutral. It's something that rather is a process and a historical process at that of humans trying to impose, but also negotiate and debate their ideas of order. Myth is inseparable from ritual. And ritual oh, is course. done, it's acted out. All five senses are involved. Mm -hmm. So it's not simply a figment of the imagination, but rather something that we experience in tangible ways. Would you classify myth as actually having that or the repercussions of myth or the effects of myth on society being the things that are tangible? I would say that myth is inseparable from ritual. You, you can't have one without the other. You need the performance of myth for it to exist. Oh, of course. Like, yeah, I'm not saying that the two aren't inherently linked. But just because they are linked doesn't mean they are the same thing. They're not. Yeah, so it's not necessarily the myth part of it that's in reality, mm. but it's myth's relationship with the world that is ritual. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. It's how I would conceive of it anyway. Yeah, I think part of ritual's relationship with the world is also myth. It, hold on. It's one of those really complicated things because you can't mm. have one without the other. Every ritual has myth behind it and every myth probably has some sort of ritual. Even the act of storytelling it is ritual. It's definitely the analytic philosophy in me to try and pick apart things and try and figure out their relationships with each other. And just because there is a one-to-one -one correlation doesn't mean we can conflate the two and that kind of thing. And that that's very much my approach. Yeah, fully. You can't conflate the two, but they, they, are, they do exist together. Yeah, they're inseparable. They're not interchangeable as words obviously because one has a little bit more of an intangible quality and the other one is an actual act they fulfill very similar functions and they have a very interesting relationship the title of this episode is folkloric creatures and where you can't find them so let's actually mm. talk about folkloric creatures we haven't really done that hell yet. yeah wait can i get my book um no you will be cheating oh okay all right all right all right all right we're gonna be doing this or that which is the game where the panelists attempt to speculate, decipher, and categorize. Today, I will present a list of things that could either be a yokai 
or a cryptid from some other mythology. The goal for you, Taya, is to decide which goes into what category. Okay, a yokai and a cryptid? A cryptid from some other mythology. Okay. So I'm not going to give you anything that's Japanese, but not a yokai. I'm not, I'm not going to do that to you. Okay. For anybody who's not familiar with the term, yokai is, I wouldn't say it's a type, but more like a class of supernatural beings, entities, spirits in Japanese uh, traditional folklore. Sometimes they're transliterated as demon in English, but it doesn't really mean that because demon is very much a Christian word. Yep. We, we've kind of retconned what demon means, but it still has that implication. Yokai are spirits uh, in that kind of way, like spiritual entities, they can be viewed as kami, which is also a weird categorization because it doesn't really have a good translation in English either. Some people call them gods. But it's kind of a mm. bigger category than gods. Like, I'm not going to get into the minutiae because I don't fully get <laughs> it, but it, it's complicated. Japanese folklore is complicated. Very complicated. Yogai are often malevolent or mischievous beings, uh, but they can also be benevolent to humans. They don't have a kind of moral quality about them inherently. It's very much contingent on their specific behavior. And they always have some kind mm. of spiritual or supernatural abilities. Classically, the most common one is shapeshifting. And shapeshifting is this idea, this, this power that exists in pretty much all cultures. Um, for example, like Kelpies and Selkies and all that kind of thing, which I could have talked about today, but we are not going to get into that. Shapeshifting is the best superpower. I can kind of boil down the typical appearance of a yokai down to like four kind of broad categories so they often have animal-like features they may appear okay. humanoid they can resemble okay. inanimate objects and they also can have no discernible shape so it is great broad it's not gonna help you out here. all right so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna give you like a short one sentence description of some kind of entity and i want you to tell me whether you think it's from Japan or not. Okay. And if it's Japan, it's going to be a yokai. Okay. So your first one is a four feet tall bipedal humanoid with green leathery skin and a frog face. I'm just going off what I see in anime, to be honest. This is very spirited away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was saying there like, dude, this could be in Ghibli. <laughs> I would like to say that I didn't take any of this from anime. <laughs> well, I feel like anime has a tendency to kind of use fake like draw figures from, from mythology, mythology or draw yeah, from it for sure which is part of why it's so fun so so yeah, your understanding of frog-like creatures being in studio ghibli movies translates to there may be four feet tall bipedal humanoid frog men in japanese folklore as well that's the process so you think it's japanese you think it's a yokai i'm gonna say yeah this is the loveland frog from ohio <laughs> it's from ohio from ohio no, listen, nothing happens in Ohio. This uh, folklore, I guess, uh, got popularized in 1972. And the alleged sighting goes as thus. Someone saw it in their headlights while they were driving. I think it was nighttime, so visibility was low. But they were freaked out by it. Mm. And I guess they, they said that this happened. I'm not really sure how it got out there. But two weeks after that, someone shot and killed it. But what they shot and killed turned out to just be a large iguana without a tail. Bruh. I thought that that anecdote about one sighting was fucking hilarious. Jesus Christ. People really come up with the weirdest shit, man. Yeah, it's great. So your next one is an Antarctic aquatic whale-like humanoid. All of these things I can see going both ways. Oh, absolutely. That's why this is a game. That's, that's the challenge. Hmm. It, it's big. It's 20 to 30 meters. It's white. It only has eyes and a mouth. 
Sometimes it's depicted as having legs and a tail. Sometimes it has five fingered hands. Japan or not Japan is so. Because what if it does exist in Japanese mythology and you just don't know about it? I do have the specific names of the cryptids listed and their associated mythologies and cultures. So. Okay. And also, I don't think an Antarctic aquatic whale like humanoid is going to be repeated somewhere else. It seems pretty specific to me, but、uh, yeah, yokai or not? Man, I'm just blind guessing, man. I'm gonna guess Japan as well. I don't know. I, I'm just gambling. You're right. This is Japanese, but it's 2002. Yeah. It's one of those internet cryptid phenomena. That's interesting. Yeah. So it was cited on like Google Earth or something like that. And people were like, what the fuck is that?、Mm. Like, it was satellite imagery. And people were like, that looks、oh、weird.、God. What is that? And then Japanese internet just kind of went exploded and they came up with this. Conspiracy theory, I guess.、Uh, it doesn't appear to have any real known law, but they're supposed to be intelligent and very human like, which is freaky. And they're called ningem, which literally means person in Japanese,、yeah. which is horrifying. I think that's, that's terrifying. That's my least favorite one out of these, just because it's on that precipice of the uncanny valley. Yeah. I'm going to give you another one. So this one is a bright red worm with a wide body, two to five feet long. Big worm. What? Big fucking worm. I'm gonna guess that it's not. Yeah, it's not. This is Mongolian. It's、yeah. the Mongolian death worm. And it's said to live around the Gobi Desert. Bruh, Mongolian death worm. That was my nickname in high school. <laughs> it's apparently able to spew acid. And that acid, whatever it touches, turns yellow and it's corrosive. You know, it decays everything and it would kill a human. So that's cool. And weirdly, I'm not sure how this also is a thing. It might also have the ability to kill long range by electric discharge. Oh. It seems incongruous with the acid spewing. Completely different <laughs> types of powers, but sure. Would you love me if I was a worm? I'm just the Mongolian <laughs> death worm. I'm just two to five feet long and I spew acid on you. Would you host a podcast with me <laughs> if I was the Mongolian death worm? Are you able to still do a podcast? I don't know. I could just spew acid into the mic. I, I think not that. I don't think that would go very well. <laughs> Unfortunately,、uh, I don't think that'd be good content. Moving on, now you have the two mouthed woman. Ooh, I think I've read something. About this, and like, I think、mm-hmm. Murakami referenced it somewhere. He seems like the kind of guy who would. Yeah. I haven't read enough Murakami to, to you know, verify that. Me either. Me either. I'm gonna guess it's not. Wow, really? This is a yokai. I thought this would be one of the gimmies. It's a woman with two mouths. That just seems classically Japanese horror. It you know? really does to me, but I was like, maybe you're trying to trick me. <laughs> it's not that deep sometimes. It just, it did give very much, but I was like, bro. It's also called the Futakuchi Onna. My first instinct was like, yeah, dude, that's Japanese. Yeah, exactly. I'm surprised that you didn't go for it. It happens when a woman does not eat, a second mouth would. Mysteriously appear on the back of the woman's head. Yeah. And that mouth would make, you know, spiteful, threatening words, mumblings into the woman, and it would demand food because, you know, the woman's not eating. The、oh. mouth would just yell very obscenely if it is not given the food that it wants, and it would inflict a lot of pain on the woman. Oh my God. This is a yokai that starts manifesting. It doesn't just appear, right? So it, later on in its evolution life cycle, I don't know, the woman's <laughs> hair. Will begin moving like a pair of serpents. 
Oh my days. That the mouth can use to help itself to meals. At that point, no food will ever pass through her normal lips. Christ. And the mouth in the back of her head will eat twice as much. Oh man. Interestingly, this yokai was the inspiration for Mawile as a Pokemon. Oh. So that's cool. That is cool. Inspired a Pokemon design. So I guess that's one of your things. That's like, it's in Japanese media. Yeah. yeah. There's so much like interesting East Asian horror and like myths and like monsters that are involved with eating. Yeah, we, we talked about this. Gustatory horror is much more common in Asian cultures, uh, more so than in the West. Because yeah. I think the West is very much more violence. Whereas yeah. the East is much more psychological, kind of humanistic, like guttural bodily stuff. Maybe it's just where I'm from, but that seems worse. Seems creepier. Oh, <laughs> it's so creepy. The Hungry Ghost Festival oh. used to like creep me out so much. Hungry Ghost Festival is weird because the spirits are supposed to have very thin needle-like necks because they can't eat. Yeah. Which is just a really weird image once you start really visualizing it. It must be terrifying to be eaten. That's so scary. Oh, for sure. And as a Chinese person, like, what the fuck? <laughs> Wait, part of why it's so scary might be because of how other it feels, of how, mm. like, kind of mainstream Western media is. The minute we see different themes in horror, it becomes creepier because mm -hmm. we have never seen it before. The, the othering is really epitomized in this very kind of twisted and specific way in Asian horror where they really play around with this idea of the uncanny valley, mm. like implicitly. It's like, it's yeah, almost human yeah. or it's human-like or it can resemble human, but it, it's, it's not. not. But, but because it could be, then it's yeah. scary. And I guess like there's like the idea of like mm. ghosts and demons that take on the appearance of humans in Western mm. myth. But something about the way that Asia does it is just incredibly unsettling. <laughs> I, I can't yep. quite put my finger on it right now, but if I give yep. it enough thought, I'm sure I won't be able to nail it down. Chinese ghost stories are so scary. Absolutely. They're terrifying. Your next one is quite famous so perhaps you'll know it but i'm not sure if this description will give it away so this one is a creature with hooves a snake tail bat wings and a horse-like head oh um it's ringing bells i don't know the name but i've heard of this one i don't think it's japanese it's giving like very chimera kind of vibes yeah it's not the chimera but it's the jersey devil okay um and it's a weird fucking origin story it's able to breathe fire or poison water with its Bruh. breath apparently conventionally dragon-like characteristics yeah um have been given to this thing so you want to hear the origin law new jersey bro new jersey <laughs> so the locals claim that you can trace the jersey devil's origin to this specific woman who's name was Mother Leeds. She was the mistress of a British soldier, uh, suspected of and mm. accused of being a witch, because of course she was. Yeah. I don't think this happened, shockingly, but apparently she cursed the 13th child that she had, because she's a witch, and witches are evil, apparently. Also, apparently she had 13 children. Wild. <laughs> that baby was born as a hairy creature that would go around the town and terrorize everybody and eat children. So that's the Jersey Devil for you. Wonderful. The bat wings and the scaled tail is, is very... Not Japanese. Yeah, not, not Japanese myth. 
This one is the skeletal spirit of a dead whale. It's it's huge. It's just a it's a fucking huge whale, ghost whale. It is accompanied always by strange birds and fish, and I cannot provide you with more explanation as to what that means. Again, it's very Ghibli. Oh, I guess so, yeah. Skeletal whale spirit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can see it. I feel like whales are a very a kind of a Japanese thing. There are whale myths in other cultures. Might I remind you about Moby Dick? I still haven't read it and I don't intend to. And there's a there's a whale in the Bible, right? Is there? Jonah gets swallowed by a whale. Yeah. Oh my god. Jonah and the whale, bro. Oh, I didn't even That's biblical? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Bible thing. Yeah, because mm-hmm. God was yep. like, oh my god. So I mean, like, if it's because you think whales are Japanese, then that's not a good reason <laughs> to believe it. It's yeah, no, it's not a good reason. I don't know. I'm I'm like thinking about it. Mm, what's your thought process? This feels like like a pirate myth. Ooh, you are so right. It kind of does feel like that. Which is why I'm going to say it's not. But are pirates inherently from somewhere? No, they're not. No, but I feel like Japan doesn't really have as big of a history of pirates as some other nations. Let's just say that. Japan is islands, though. It has a lot of sea myths. That is true. A lot of sea myths. Okay, I'm still going to guess Japanese. You are correct. Yeah. Yeah, so it's the Bakekujira. Apparently, it brings about the curse of the whale whenever this whale spirit shows up at a place. Damn. It it supposedly brings famine, plague, fires, other kind of natural disasters. The whale's curse. The whale's (laughs) curse. It's the curse of the whale. Thank you very much. The curse of the whale. Sorry. And it's interesting because whales are usually kind of viewed as prized gifts from the gods mm. cornucopia of meat resources you know the fat is always like really sought after my conjecture is that maybe because it's a dead whale that it's like the opposite of a whale <laughs> i don't know i i i don't know it's like a opposite whale maybe um apparently the discovery of it was when a fisherman tried to you know shoot his harpoon into the whale that it just went through oh my god <laughs> is is how the story goes it's very like old man in the sea mm-hmm Hemingway. Yeah. So after that, the whale just kind of floated away, I guess. All right. One more, right? One more. This one is going to be ambiguous as fuck. Great. Are you ready? Yeah. It's a great one to end on. This one is a tall man able to change size. That's everyone. <laughs> and he can he can change his size from that of a blade of grass to a large tree. Oh boy, it's Ant-Man. <laughs> it's Ant-Man. Oh boy, it's Ant-Man. I'm going to guess it's not Japanese because I think it's Ant-Man. <laughs> no, absolutely <laughs> not. That can't be your reason. That's my reason. <laughs> Pick a different reason. Pick literally any no. other reason. <laughs> you just described Ant-Man, bro. He, he can become the size of a tree to the size of a blade of grass. That's Ant-Man, dude. Okay, fine. I also have a lot of problems with Ant-Man, by the way, <laughs> as a franchise because I think it doesn't make sense. That is- it does. They turn a, a tank really small and then they can make it a keychain, but they specifically say that the mass is maintained, so that makes no sense. Yeah, that makes no sense at all. And same with the Thomas the Tank engine little train being blown up and crashing the house. It is so not dense, it should float up. Doesn't make sense, but whatever. It's fine. Oh boy. I think it should at least be internally compatible with itself. A Marvel you know? <laughs> just slapping the word quantum in front of anything and going, yeah, that makes sense. Science. Absolutely, that is the case. God. Are you going to tell me whether or not this is Japanese or not? Right, so this is Slavic. Yeah, baby, it's Ant-Man. It's, Ant-Man is not Slavic. Is Ant-Man Slavic? Why am I doubting myself? 
Paul Rudd. No, he's not. But you've just basically described Ant-Man, bro. Sure. Okay. So it's called the Leshy or the Lesovic. I'm I'm definitely pronouncing that horribly. I don't have any grip on Slavic pronunciation. Our Russian crew member, Alex, might listen to this and internally cringe real hard. But yep. So that's what it's called. So I'll describe its appearance to you. Okay. It has hair and a beard made out of grass and vines, just like plant life. Hell yeah. Its right ear is usually missing. It sometimes is depicted to have a tail, hooves, and horns. That's kind of creepy. It's kind of like Pan. Oh. Sort of. Yeah. I think it's kind of creepy to have like one body part removed. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're going to have this like weird like one thing. So it has blue blood and blue blush, you know, like when it blushes, Mm. its cheeks turn blue. And it has no shadow, vampire-like, I guess, in that in that regard. It is the Lord of the Forest, the Forest Lord, and it always carries a club around to, you know, enforce that. Lord of the Forest, the Forest Lord. That'd be my rap name. <laughs> I can't wait to hear your new album. So it has a red scarf, and his left shoe is on his right foot. And that's all I have about that thing. I don't know if he has a shoe on the other side. Is he wearing two left shoes? I, I'm not sure. Why did they specify that? Why is that important, though? I don't know, but it, I guess it's just, like, strange, right? It's All just, right. Like, centric, I guess. Adds to, like, the weirdness. So there are multiple kind of relationships that people can have with it. So if you befriend it, you can learn the secrets of magic. Farmers and shepherds may make pacts with it uh, in order to protect their crops and, you know, their animals, like their sheep. But it can be malicious as well. So here's some things that I have uh, written down as to what it can do to people. Primarily peasants, sadly. So it may lead peasants astray, fall ill, tickle them to death, which that one seems the weirdest to me. What? <laughs> it hides woodcutters, axes. This would go crazy in a video game. Uh, it's also said that if you cross a leshy in the woods, you will get lost. You'll just become lost. Oh, wait. Aleshi? Yes. Wait, that's so interesting. One of the researchers on this team, Lucas and I, were playing a game called Inscription. Mm-hmm. It's really, really good. And there's a forest guy with a beard of vines. Oh. Who's called Lashai. Maybe it's Lashai and I just fucking... Yeah, maybe it's that the whole time. Dude, wait, they must have, like... What if they, like, got inspiration from, like, the myth? No, I think it just is that guy. He might have had an ear missing, actually. It might just be. Because in that game, you you have to pull out your own teeth. And it's, like, oh. set in the in the woods. That's actually really sick. Lashai, Leshi. I think a Leshi. Crosses your path. And if you're in the woods, you'll get lost. Uh, to find the way out, you have to... Turn your clothes inside out and wear your shoes on the opposite feet. The the clothes inside Ooh. out thing seems strange to me. I guess it's just this whole like inversion idea, like this uncrossing, I guess, in the weirdest fucking way. Oh, let's go camping and find bro. Imagine you're like a tourist <laughs> and you see like people in the forest and they're, they're just like people like, be wearing their clothes inside Lovely. out and the shoes on the opposite end. You're like, what are they doing? And then like the local villager just goes, try to get my way out, bro. They just came across Aleshi, bro. And you're like, who the hell is Aleshi? Like, what? I'd be so bamboozled. And he's just like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. They're, they're <laughs> fine. They're fine. And you're like, everything is clearly not fine. So thank you for listening to the Gifted Kid Complex. If you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast and would like to support us, a very simple way to do so is to let people know that we're here. Subscribe or follow so you can come back every week. And please do rate and review us so others can find us too. It would really help us out. <laughs>
And we'd also always appreciate hearing anything you, our listeners, have to say. If you'd like to contact us to make any suggestions or share some interesting stuff with us, you can do so via the form in the link tree in our show notes. And we're also now on Patreon. By pledging to the Gifted Kid Complex, you can get rewards such as full-length and uncensored video episodes and before and after commentary from the cast and crew. It's linked in our show notes too, alongside any citations and references to topics we discussed today if you want any further reading. We will release a few short bonus episodes on our main RSS feed for everyone to listen to as and when, made out of the fascinating tangents that landed on the cutting room floor. If you'd like to see even more bonus content though, uh, another Patreon reward is exclusive bonus content you can't find anywhere else, both in audio and in video form. The Gifted Kid Complex is created, directed and produced by me, Cher C, our co-hosts and primary writer researchers are Taya and myself. Our primary editor is me, our secondary editors are Taya C and our audio engineer is Taya C. Our assistant writer researchers and transcribers are Alex E, Delaney L, Isaiah H, Jenny S and Lucas we record our episodes on riverside.fm and publish with rss.com so thank you to them for helping us in making the gifted kid complex exist and finally thank you to you our patrons and listeners because you are the reason we can and do make the gifted kid complex we have so much fun with it and we hope that you love it too so see See you you next week week for another episode (laughs) of the gifted kid complex